My name is Peter Murphy Lewis, and welcome to the LTC Heroes Podcast. Join me on this journey as we deep dive into how long term care leaders like you are overcoming obstacles with unparalleled solutions. I hope these curious conversations contribute to the care of your residents. If you are anything like me and intimidated by interoperability, today's podcast is going to be a great fit for you because I brought in one of the leading experts in the U.S. on interoperability, Scott Stewie, to break it down. He gave me a 101 class, a interoperability for dummies, where we are in long-term care uh, as opposed to acute and where we're going with interoperability, its benefits, notifications, workflow, gaps, mistakes. I'm certain that if you find this topic a little bit above your pay grade, you will find that Scott is very inviting, very welcoming, and gives us a lay of the land. I hope you enjoy it and learn from Scott as much as I did. Scott, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Peter. So, Scott, before we dive into interoperability, I always like to start off the show with three questions. And the first one is, what valuable or actionable advice do you expect that we'll cover in today's chat? Well, I'm really hoping people understand that uh, that there are really inexpensive and quick and easy ways to achieve interoperability for long-term care uh, organizations. And so that's really my, my goal for folks today, to understand how that looks. Looking forward to it. What is one lesser-known book, newsletter, or industry resource that you recommend I go to for a better understanding of the long-term care industry? I'll tell you, when I'm trying to understand the long-term care industry, I turn to a, an old friend of mine who uh, is uh, Jerry Selig, who puts out a, I think it's a weekly uh, newsletter that basically gives you pretty much everything you need to know about the long-term care setting. So it's called, um, I think he calls it reinvention. Is that right? Revitalize. Revitalize is right. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating, fascinating read. I'll put those in the show notes. And uh, I haven't told you this before, Scott, but Jerry Silik was our first or second podcast on here. And he's also the way that you and I were, were introduced. And I'll, I'll make a mention of that as we get further along. Yeah. So Scott, name one mentor or influencer in your life that has inspired you for the work that you do in the long-term care industry. You know, I've got to say that as long as I worked at Cerner Corporation, I had the the pleasure of working for and pretty closely with uh, the uh, now deceased founder of uh, Cerner Corporation, uh, Neil Patterson. And uh, I found him very remarkable in terms of his ability to see where the industry was going and actually to influence where the industry would go. So uh, a great loss to the industry that uh, that Neil passed uh, several years ago of cancer. Thank you for for sharing that inspiration. Sorry that he's passed, but I'm sure that we will tease out uh, what he's taught you in the industry in today's chat. Scott, let's let's jump in, but I want to start off with a simple, simple explanation. I, when you're not in the room, I talk. I refer to you as the interoperability expert guru uh, that teaches me most about it. But you really had to do a 101 for me the first time we had a chat. What? Explain interoperability to someone who's never heard of it and why it's important for the long-term care industry. Yeah, I mean, so interoperability, when it's working at its best, is really when you're working in one system and you press button A, and then that can cause that same button to be pressed in system B. So you're basically able to create the same outcome in another system by taking that action in the first so um, that's, the, I think, when interoperability is working best, it's literally like that. But frequently, interoperability is far less than that. It's um, sometimes as simple as just a message going back and forth. And um, what's missing sometimes is the, the necessary context in order to make the workflow happen on the other end. And this happens kind of regardless of the, of the way in which interoperability is done. The goal is to get, to get it to matter less that you work in a different system than the people who, around you who you want to communicate with. That's, I think, the key element in uh, inter- interop. That's a great explanation. Where are we today in interoperability? How many facilities are connected? What are the major players or the, the most important, I don't want to say modules, but what is the most important messaging currently happening in our industry? 
Yeah, so today there are really kind of two things that are actually quite well developed in terms of health information exchange. The first I would describe query, which is uh, the, the easy way to think about this is the patient is in front of me, where are their records? You know, you want to go out and get the data, bring it back. That query-based exchange is becoming very, very, very common, and it's a very, uh, it's a very important use case, particularly in the in the emergency department. That's where you're interested in seeing the information that comes from outside because the patient is new to you, you've never seen them. Okay, so that use case is is very, very focused on uh, or places a lot of value on the query approach. Um, the other big approach is what you might call push messaging, which is what direct secure messaging is, which is our organization has a uh, has has a trust framework that enables push messaging for the virtually the entire industry. And really, when you look at that industry, a lot more of the of the smaller organizations are enabled by direct messaging because it's very much lower cost than query based exchange. So. Um, there are roughly uh, 265,000 organizations that can support direct secure messaging today. Roughly 700 million transactions sent and received in Q in, in 2020, and you know that's that's a, a lot of connected parties and a lot of messages back and forth. Uh, now on the query-based exchange side, they're also in the in the millions and millions of transactions. The number of organizations they connect are far fewer, however. Uh, and that's partly because it's a lot more costly to do query-based exchange. The query-based exchange is generally all done through EHRs, electronic health record systems, where on the direct messaging side, both electronic health record systems and other systems can be involved in the exchange. So that's that's kind of the, that's the landscape today. There's a another kind of, kind of key vector that's grow, that people are starting to talk about, which is called FIRE. It's just brand new. It's really what is driving uh, and really a kind of a lot of the obligations in the, the, the most recent rules out of both uh, CMS and the ONC require people to use FIRE for certain things, but it's still pretty early in its, in its, its incarnation. It will mostly initially be a, uh, another way to query and not bring you something brand new, if you will, uh, but just give you a new way to do the same thing you already can do. So you mentioned some numbers, Scott. You mentioned 265,000 organizations, millions of messaging going back and forth. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm guessing the most of this is, most of this is on the acute side, and we are a little bit delayed in its arrival to long-term care. Well, absolutely, Peter. You know, so the the obligations in the certification rule, which is a part of the High Tech Act in you know 2008, the meaningful use exercise that obligated mostly well, it obligated hospitals and practices, but explicitly did not obligate long term care facilities to do any of this work. So. What that meant was that not only did the did the individual organizations not deploy it, but the EHR companies themselves didn't build the capabilities because they didn't have to. And so some of them have, and many of them are starting to now, but um, a lot of them haven't built the, what I would call interoperable workflows. You know, like what does the, how does the user interact with the information that comes from outside and what does that look like? That's what is needed to be built, not just the getting stuff back and forth part. That's, it's actually not difficult to get direct, for instance, in, in place in a new facility or system, but it is complex to provide the best workflow for that after you've received the message. Why are EHRs and computer solutions not only, well, I can understand that the government didn't obligate it, but also why are they not willing? Is it not wanting to share their data? Is it wanting to make sure that their data is more sticky? Why are we slow? Is it a cost issue? Well, it's, I think it's a bunch of things. I mean, it's, uh, cost is certainly an impact. I don't think that's not an impact. Um, I think that, you know, the, the information blocking rule, which was this recent, you know, ONC work that was laid out, that rule was written at a time. So the, the legislation behind that rule is 21st Century Cures, which came out right at the end of the Obama administration. So basically at that time, things were really pretty uh, slow to exchange. There was there were a lot of, I think, pretty hard barriers, 
preventing things from being exchanged. EHR companies were creating barriers. Provider organizations were creating, creating barriers. There was lots of things in the way. But I think what happened over the course of about the next three years is a lot of those barriers came down. Then the for the folks that didn't have an explicit obligation or otherwise have an incentive, they actually had a reason to want to build these interoperable workflows because some of the most important things that they wanted to receive were messages inbound, referrals inbound, right? So if you're a long-term care facility, referrals may be your lifeblood. I mean, depending on certainly in the in the um, rehab space, for example, those those messages inbound to you might be, hey, would you take care of my patient? I mean, that's a that's an opportunity, right? So there's built-in benefits to interoperability for the receiver. And that's so that's the reason why most of the obligations in the um, uh, in these rules were for senders. Now, what has changed is that recently we have new obligations for hospitals to send to long term care and long term care doesn't actually have an obligation to receive, but they have an incentive just naturally from a business standpoint. It's important for them to receive this information about their patients when they are being discharged, for instance, from the hospital, being able to notify the long-term care facility that the patient is has been discharged or or admitted for that matter. You know, they they may want to know when they had a change in care. So if they got admitted to the ED and got sent to the floor, or if they were on the floor and got sent to the ICU, those are of interest to the long-term care facility because the, those are their patients uh, and how they're tracking through the healthcare system. I think that uh, what we're finding is that now with this new obligation, which actually happens in May, uh, that's that notifications work that it was uh, obligated in the CMS rule, that's going to cause a lot of traffic to want to move toward these long-term care facilities. And they'll many of them receive some of their first messages, I think, when that stuff becomes an obligation. So do you have any idea what percentage of facilities or receivers in this side are not connected to the system and not receiving notifications? Well, it's funny you say it that way. I think actually mostly it's, it's most of them are not. Um, so it's, it's really early in the process because even in the era when there was an explicit obligation for hospitals and practices to send and receive direct messages, for instance, it took a while <laughs> to get that to happen. I mean, they, they, the, the systems had an obligation to build it in. And then after that, it was, okay, there was, a, there was an obligation to send to someone, but then how many receivers were actually getting anything in the very beginning? Well, very few. And so, and in fact, that is still spotty for certain kinds of transactions. It's not, we're, we're starting to see this really, really take off though. So uh, referrals and, and transitions of care are, are becoming much more common. Uh, and certainly in the the vector between the hospital or frankly, even the practice in the long-term care setting, I think we're starting to see more transaction in that space, but it's still really early. And so the actual percentages, my guess is we're probably in single digits still. Mm. If you had an owner operator from a long-term care facility in front of you who was interested in, in being connected and receiving these, these notifications, what would you tell them in terms of how long it's going to take for them to get set up? What percentage of the network are they going to be connected to? What is the the ongoing cost going to be for them? Do they need a full-time IT person? Will will your company set this up? Explain to me if I came knocking on your door saying, uh, this makes sense to me. I heard your podcast. We have 200 beds. I need help. Yeah, so the best thing to do is to get the services of one of our uh, accredited members. So we have roughly 30 companies that are uh, what they call HISPs, Health Information Service Providers. And those organizations do all kinds of work for the, for, for the folks they connect. And they actually can make it pretty easy for the endpoints that they connect. I mean, sometimes if the electronic health record system or whatever system is in place has the capability they can connect using whatever capability they have. So the, the HISPs, I, I like to think of them as sort of jackknives with different blades on each end. So they're basically able to, regardless of how it's coming in, they can deal with uh, getting it to the right place going out. 
uh, well, the coming in is always direct, but the, the going out might be lots of different, what they call edge protocols, lots of different ways to connect to the systems on the edge. Those companies are all really good at that. And they um, they support all kinds of players in the long-term care space, certainly. And the, the costs come into the amount of hours, the amount of systems that you need set up and connected? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the complexity of the integration. I mean, the, the simplest case is to just get an inbox. Like literally, you can just get an inbox for messages that are inbound from any source. And when you say, well, how big is the network? Well, it's basically 2.5 million connected parties. Um, those uh, That's the 260,000 organizations, but the individuals at those organizations frequently have identities and, and addresses themselves. So they will be sending messages directly from their address to yours. And so um, educating your, your trading partners that you have a direct address and making it known that you can be reached in that way or uh, that referrals can come to you in that way. That's, I think that that's what I would recommend folks to do in the long-term care space. Find a HISP, and don't expect it to be that that expensive. It's actually not, it, it could be expensive if it requires unique integration and if that's what you really want. But if all you care about is just getting a message in an inbox, that can be done very inexpensively. I think we should transition a little bit to the benefits of being connected and then we can compare it to maybe the costs. So we can see that there's obviously a huge win for once you are connected. But before we get into that, Let's let's introduce what is what is direct trust. What is the role of direct trust in the industry, and who are when we talk about members? What does it mean, members? Can yeah, you walk you. me through that. So, yeah, the, there's uh, direct trust is a not-for-profit trade association. We're a you know a five hundred one c six. So we're um, we have members that are those accredited members that operate the network. They're about. 40 of 100, 100 of our members, the other 60 are users of our network, basically folks who have the services of a HISP and want to see it succeed. And so they participate with us in standards work and policy work and in improvements in how the system actually works. We are not a, we're not a for-profit company. We're not a technical company at all, except for the, the accreditation work we do for these various members. The only thing we operate from a technical perspective is we operate a, a, a directory that people can use to find direct addresses for people throughout the throughout the ecosystem. So direct as an organization has 100 members, but you don't have to be a member of direct trust to use direct trust network. All you need is the services from one of those accredited members. And that's the there are those 265,000 relationships that the HISPs have today with organizations that, that you'd want to be one of. <laughs> you'd want to create that kind of a relationship with a HISP. That's what gives you the ability to use direct messaging. Not being a member of direct, although direct trust, although we'd love to have you members of direct trust, direct trust is a trust framework. And so people like to be involved in that so they can help with the policies that the trust framework represents. Why did you create direct trust? And what, what did it look like from the beginning? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. So here's the deal. Direct trust arose because of the challenge of, of creating a trusted ecosystem. So here's what's unique about direct that I haven't really mentioned so far. It's secure and identity assured. So what, what it amounts to is everybody on the network, you know who they are. And you know who they are because you can find their digital certificate uh, and then, you know, you basically can see who they are. Okay, so that part is is the technical piece that makes it possible. But from a policy standpoint, what makes you sure that you are connected to somebody who you know? Okay, in the old days, there were HISPs. And when I say in the old days, we're talking about 2011, 2012. So at the very beginning of direct messaging, there were HISPs already doing the work but there was, there was no ability for people to trust each other except with individually orchestrated legal arrangements. So each HISP had an arrangement with each other HISP. So if you, at that time, there were about 40 HISPs, and they all had to make you know, direct relationships with all the rest of them. And so that didn't happen universally. You ended up with you know, a few making a lot of really good, you know, good solid relationships, but a lot of uh, others were kind of left out in the cold. And the thing that's interesting about direct 
is that the HISPs are all national networks in their own right. So they all they all are national anyway. So you had these 40 organizations all operating nationally, none of which were available to each other except with explicit relationships. So what Direct Trust did was it created an ability for people to put their what they call a trust anchor. So your trust anchor, which is the technical capability that says that you can talk to me and know who I am, basically a certificate, a digital certificate. All of those went into one bucket called a trust bundle. And that made it possible for anybody who was in the trust bundle to find anybody else. That's why 2.5 million people can be, or, or uh, individuals and, and organizations can be reached uh, via direct messaging because all of those 2.5 million addresses chain up to an anchor in that bundle. And that's a kind of a technical set of discussions. But the point I'm trying to make is in the absence of direct trust, each HISP had to have a relationship with each other HISP. And now each HISP just has to have a relationship with direct trust. Direct trust then maintains that centralized ability for everyone to trust each other. It sounds like before direct trust, there's a lot of paperwork and the attorneys made a lot of money you came around and you made things a lot easier and a lot less costly for all of these HISPs. Well, exactly right. And not just for the HISPs, but for the organizations that they serve, because it meant that you didn't need to talk to your HISP when you were unable to reach some organization or another. Like, you know, you're like, how come I can't reach this, you know, uh, Epic facility down the street? Well, that's because they're HISP and we haven't yet, you know, uh, made an agreement. So then you have to make an agreement and tell them, okay, go ahead, try. You know, it's like, now it's anybody in the in the trust bundle can talk to anyone else. I'd like to move to the benefits because we started off with the cost and you said that it's not costly. Actually, there's a lot of benefits to it. Let's talk about something practical. Let's dive into something either whether it be referrals or notifications. Notifications have been trendy for the last year or two. Can you kind of walk me through what an ideal notification system or an ideal interoperability channel looks like if you were a facility? Yeah, I and mean, I think referrals is a really exciting thing to talk about. So the advantage to referrals are that, again, they have their own um, motivations. You don't need to incent people to do referrals. They, for the folks who are doing referral, that who are the referring providers, uh, it's a cost savings to do it electronically. Like basically you can do it right out of your system. You can, you can, it's actually built into the referral workflow of the sending system. You basically just say, okay, I want to do a referral and send this doctor. That's their, their direct address. Off it goes to that physician. Okay, so that workflow is faster, easier for the sender. On the receiving end, receiving it this way instead of via fax or by phone call is very, very much more useful because you get all of the, the chart information that the sending facility wanted you to know one of our clinician leaders likes to call it a curated, a curated chart for the which is which is tuned to the needs of the receiver based on what the sender knows about the patient. So the sender knows what this receiver is going to want to know based on what they know about the patient. So it's it's a curated chart, which is a much different thought than hey, show me everything you know about the patient. This is why I'm sending them to you. You know, the things that I looked at that told me that you were the referral I wanted to make. That is, is I think, a very powerful use. Now, it's interesting that the, the thing that keeps that from being ubiquitously used is that there's a need to create some workflow here, some closing of the loop. You need to be able to go back to the sender and saying, yep, I, I accept that referral or don't send that patient to me because I don't have time or I don't actually do that service or whatever it is. There are reasons why they might, might refuse a referral, but once they actually accept the referral, can they also send the consult back when they've actually done something? That's it. Now, if you are a long-term care provider, this referral may be for a long-term visit for a, you know, for a considerable period of time. So if we're talking about rehab, for example, anybody who's had a had a family member or themselves been in the hospital waiting for a rehab bed knows that the exercise today is, you know, a phone call exercise, complicated, long, it's, and it takes a long time. The value proposition around being able to do this electronically and be able to send, for instance, multiple requests for referrals and have, have a closed loop to say, I want that one. 
that is a really, really, uh, a really, think a really strong value proposition for long-term care. And that work we're talking about, that that closed loop, that uh, we're doing that work in a standards in standards work that Direct Trust is involved in called 360X. That that referral that allows for the closing of the loop. That's when I think uh, referrals are going to really make a lot of sense, particularly in the long-term care setting. That closing of the loop. I mean. I'm probably younger than some of our owners and operators, and that language, closing of the loop, seems scary to me. Technologically speaking, it sounds costly to me. If if this is new to me, or I feel like this is five or 10 years away from my facility, can you simplify that? And who's going to solve that problem? Do I have to hire an IT person? Is that something one of your members do? Is it is it inexpensive? Because I, I want to get to the referral, but you just scared me with the close the loop. Yeah, I mean, you can actually close the loop manually. So don't don't get me wrong. This is not a the, the closing of the loop with an automated process is probably is built in to your electronic health record system. So when they build that 360x compliant response, that'll you'll get it with your system. And whether they offer it as a, an inclusion included part or if they require you to pay more for it, I don't know what they'll do. But but that's I would think you would expect that to come from your vendor. Otherwise, what you'll get in a referral is just something that you can read, that you can tell as a referral, that then you could reply to and say, yes, we're good with this, or you know, no, please don't send them. I mean, so you can still close the loop, even in the absence of technical capabilities to do so. It's just a little more work. What are the, what are the benefits for doctors and nurses at a long-term care facility? Yeah, I, mean, I think that doctors in general, I mean, physicians are interested, of course, in getting complete sense of what their patients are about. And so receiving uh, transitions of care from, from acute facilities or, or these like a discharge summary from a, a, long, a, a hospital to the, to, to the long-term care facility, that's going to be valuable to those physicians because then they'll know the history of the patient. They'll have all of the information from the, the encounter that they had at the hospital. That is actually pretty useful. Now, when you're talking about notifications, it's literally just that this, this information occurred. And the, those two might want to work kind of differently. So the best EHR systems handle those differently, put them in kind of two different tracks. And part of the work we're doing in the notifications uh, consensus body was to ensure that if people wanted those to go to different workflows, they could, because they could tell them apart. So in the one case, you're getting a discharge summary and you want that to go to the chart. You don't want to have to look at it necessarily. It's just going to go in the chart. So when you look up the patient, there it is. That's, that is the fantasy of how this stuff works. Now, the second lane though would be this, my patient has shown up at the ER. I don't want that to go in the chart. I want that to hit me in the forehead, right? So, I mean, that should come into my into my workflow, into my and, and interrupt me, or at least be there so I can see it because it's essential for me to know. So those two workflows, you know, in order to kind of separate one from the other, what's required is that the messages being sent have to have enough context on them so you so the receiving system can figure out how to handle them. And even if there was just a little information so that the user, even if there wasn't a system, could easily tell what was important and what was not. So um this is a notification for this versus this is just a transition of care. Those are very, very different use cases and uh, have different levels of urgency around the, the, use, the, the receiver's interest. In terms of the direction that technology has taken us, can you see the trends a year from now, two years from now? Are there still gaps in technology that, that we haven't figured out how to solve because we have a fragmented system of care? I guess I'm interested in a little bit of your speculation, but also kind of what still needs to improve. Yeah, and I think anybody, I had an interesting conversation today with a gentleman, Rob Tennant, who was recently at MGMA, but has just left to an organization called Weedy. Now, he and I were having a really fascinating conversation about, you know, smartphones. So everybody's got these smartphones and when you got them, you uh, you know how many of you read the the uh, the user manual for your smartphone? Well, nobody, because there wasn't a user manual. There didn't need to be one. It was intuitive. Everybody kind of knew the metaphors. It was all straightforward. Now, in the electronic health record business, we're such a long way from there. It still takes a lot of training to learn 
uh, to use you know, uh, electronic systems. I think our biggest gap today is in usability. Uh, usability, that means that uh, applications, technologies are self-tutorial, that they are that they don't require a great deal of training or effort to learn. Uh, that is, I think, the biggest the biggest gap we have right now is that technologies are not easy to to pick up. They're uh, they're pretty complex, and they're um, they could be so much easier to use. And that's, I think, what what I would like to see. We we focus again on workflow, which has is kind of new for direct. Direct has been really direct trust has been focused on the transport. I mean, our our standard is really about getting stuff from place to place. But we're, I think, right now interested in thinking about, well, okay, I got it from place to place. What does the interoperable workflow need to look like at a high level to make it usable? What is it? How does it, what should it do? What are the, you know, they, to say there are requirements is too strong because we can't tell a whole industry to do things one way. And that, that would be silly for us to do. But they should at least pay attention to a few key things. And so what are those things they should pay attention to? That's, I think, our new focus is on workflow and usability. And where are you getting that information and feedback from? So you're able to, you know, address these workflow needs. Are you talking to that single digit percentage of our industry that's already connected to interoperability? Are you talking to technological people, tech people who aren't even in long-term care and they're able to see how other in- industries have further advanced? Well, I think what what we're what we're looking to do, and I said so this is more of a, an aspiration than something we've actually successfully done. Uh, we're looking to engage with the users and super users of these of these systems and pull them into a forum to discuss how they believe things could be made better. And then kind of get that set of recommendations together into a, into a platform to promote that information to the EHRs. Because the, the electronic health record systems, they listen to their individual clients, but I think that uh, what we have the opportunity to do is bring a bunch of those clients together and say, what do we need as a, as a community? What we need is we need things to work better together across these boundaries, right? So if, if a workflow starts in one system and finishes in the other, what is the, the obligation of the receiver around doing something with that information that's sent? I think that's the, um, the, the next big thing because focus has been placed a lot on the senders. The receivers need to do their part to make it useful for the receiver's system so that, frankly, so that the transactions really work. I, I mean, I like to say that, you know, there's nothing worse than technology that almost works. We're in this point now where direct is very, very ubiquitous, very commonly deployed in lots of settings, and it almost is doing a great job, but it's just got a few things we need to iron out to make it the kind of thing people love right now. I mean, people dislike things most when they almost work. I mean, you you were probably too young, Peter, remember when cell phones died when you were in the middle of saying the most provocative and stupid thing you said on a phone call. No, I, re- I remember. <laughs> okay, well, you know, so you're driving down the 405, I remember this in, in California, driving down the 405 and you're talking to someone and you say something provocative that you would not have been how you wanted to end the sentence. And that's when you lose connection and you can't get connected for 15 minutes. And the, the whoever you're talking to is thinks you're a, a, a turkey. You know, so that to me is is where we are in interoperability a lot. The interoperable workflows are not satisfying, but the interoperability is actually happening, but the workflows are not satisfying. Are there any super users out there in long-term care that that you already know are well-connected inside of Direct Trust or case studies that you you look to and whenever you're thinking about a new workflow, you knock on this door, you call this person and and would be good for us to for us as an industry to look towards? Well, we recently got a member from the long-term care community, um, Matrix Care, which has a couple of different, you know, um, long-term care products. Uh, we don't have a lot of long-term care members inside of Direct Trust. We have actually a number of of our HISPs that serve them kind of especially. And so gradually we've gotten, um, you know, several 
organizations that have experience making the connections to, to long-term care. And so they're helping us understand this. Now, what we're trying to do right now though, is to convene a group of super users that will include folks from the long-term care community to have this discussion, to make this list of what, how, what needs to work better so that we can speak with one kind of community voice to the electronic health record companies and, to, and frankly to, to the ONC or to CMS to say, hey, we need this regulation or we need this regulation you know, um, mediated or remediated or removed. I mean, that's so those are the kinds of things that we wanna try and really, we wanna get a loud voice made up of many voices that can kind of share their thoughts with us about how direct and interoperability in general terms can be made more usable. How did you come about creating direct trust? I know we explored it a little bit, but I'm interested in the personal side of things. You worked at Cerner for 24 years. Did the opportunity arise when the government said, hey, senders, this has to be done? And then you saw that there were pockets of fragmented connectivity. Did you dream of this beforehand personally? Because I can tell you're passionate. So I want to get in kind of from your mind. I want to get down into the heart and where you saw this happen and how it's helping. Well, let me just share with you, first of all, I'm not the founder of Direct Trust. The founder of Direct Trust, uh, the first president and CEO was a gentleman named Dr. David Kibbe. Uh, David Kibbe was also very passionate. I think um, he fought through those first wars. So he's the one that sort of uh, worked with the ONC to get funding for to create Direct Trust initially in 2012. So that uh, exercise to create ONC or uh, Direct Trust initially was, again, a cooperative agreement with the Office of the National Coordinator created Direct Trust, or gave it enough uh, funding to get it off the ground at that first stage. ONC was critically aware, aware of the fact that in the absence of this trust framework, like we're discussing, nothing would work. Now, where we are today and what's happened in the last two years is what we had at the point where I took over Direct Trust is a broadly deployed ubiquitous network that most everyone was dissatisfied with. Okay, mm. so now what we're trying to do is move, the, and I'm not suggesting that we're de- we've declared that we've declared a victory. I think we have more satisfaction than we did two years ago, but we still have a whole long way to go. A lot of that related to workflow. Um, so my passion really comes from growing up in the electronic health record industry, and you know if you worked in the electronic health record industry and in one of the systems companies that you know that was working in that on this this hard problem and watched the electronic health record industry be born, which I, 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 you know, I was, I started at Cerner in 93 and the electronic health record didn't really exist as a concept, except in, you know, the minds of a couple of entrepreneurs at that point, it was no electronic health record system. There were lab systems and there were, you know, uh, registration systems and there were, you know, clinical data repositories and they were all different. And so having one system that had everything in it, that was very much the vision of, uh, of the founder of Cerner, uh, Neil, but also several other you know, key entrepreneurs in the industry uh, growing up at the same time. So watching that stuff come together was and, and very exciting. I mean, so because it was, you could see the potential for you know, saving, saving time and effort and, and frankly, bringing automation to an industry that had none. Uh, so, uh, you know, by the time I got done at Cerner in uh, 2016, you know, you really pretty much went to the point from the point uh, between eight, two, 2008 and 2016, you went from, you know, low double digit, uh, you know, to a very high double digit adoption in the electronic health record space from like the 20s to the 90s in just, you know, like eight, nine years arguably precipitous growth. <laughs> I mean, very, very rapid growth. And that growth was exciting to see, but I think it also is part of the reason why we have so much unusable workflow today is because so much was built so fast <laughs> that, it, um, that it didn't get the thought that it needed. So when you, when you grew up in that industry, you wanted to see careful thought. I think once the industry got this sort of high octane boost from meaningful use, it made a lot of decisions, uh, I don't know, they, they, decisions were made quickly, perhaps not the best decisions. <laughs> 
Scott, what are what are your your goals look like at Direct Trust in long term care, and also kind of walk me through what your day to day looks like, or what your your monthly goals as as president are. Well, so I think next for Direct Trust is really a focus on on creating differentiation for the messages we send in our network, so that receivers can behave differently. That's essential, I think, for us to succeed, for direct messaging to remain vital and important. I think we need to get that differentiation done. That's been, that's my primary focus right now. In terms of my day-to-day, um, I mean, you know, COVID has been nothing new for, for us, for me. I mean, we're a, we're a virtual organization. I have uh, meetings six to seven hours a day. I'm on, you know, uh, go to meeting or Zoom virtually all the all day long. <laughs> and that's just the way, you know, my life has always been. So uh, working with, uh, the only thing that's, that's been different now that we're in the COVID land is that I'm not getting on airplanes. But other than that, it's been pretty much the same. Uh, lots of, I really see that, that focus on these new kind of interoperable workflows and the standards that can support them that's really our focus in the next uh, you know, one to three years. We want to try and get more and more workflows supported by direct and supported by as many of the uh, systems players as we can. And the long-term post-acute space is, the, is a great opportunity to kind of make things happen right from the get-go because uh, a lot of those folks are just getting started. Are you excited about the future? Are you optimistic about the future? And and I would ask you to answer specifically to long long term care. Or do you think that we're still in a an uphill battle to get implementation to to get buy in to get how the understanding to understand the the benefits? You know, I am optimistic about the future. I think that you know what I see direct able to do to do in the and and not just direct but interoperability in general terms. I see that it can be the kind of nervous system that connects all the various organs in healthcare and makes it possible for them to to operate as a system instead of operating as separate organisms, which I think is is the the key opportunity for interoperability. I think that there's a lot of possibilities around that, uh, particularly focus on specific use cases and specific value propositions for specific constituencies. So I think long-term care, because they're a, they place huge value on the referral and because they place huge value on notifications, I think they've got an opportunity to uh, see new transactions come in the door that they have interest in and that they'll be attentive to. And that's really what drives this stuff. If there's a listener right now who has a facility and they said, hmm, this makes sense to me. It's logical. I need to move this direction. What questions should they start to ask themselves? Where should they assess themselves to see how ready they are? And what what do they need to consider as they go down this path? Well, I think the place where we are right now, just in general, I mean, pretty much all facilities are struggling, you know, in economic terms. This is a very rough patch we're going through. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, there's the princess bride line, you know, we have to consider our assets, you know, take a look at what you've got. And what you've got is likely, it may be that you already have direct messaging. Um, it is actually extremely likely you do. Even if you're a, uh, if you're a long-term care facility that didn't have the obligation to do so, the electronic health record system you use may have the option of having direct messaging. So, Find out if interoperable workflows are available in the system you have. Find out what your assets are. That's number one. So assets first. Second, if your electronic health record system doesn't have an asset for you in this space, see if you can find a workaround because you need to get connected. You need to be available to the rest of the network. So that might just mean getting the services of HISP. You wouldn't necessarily need to even get your EHR company to do anything. In the long run, assess your assets, make a determination whether they're the right ones for your, for your business. Understand that's a long-term proposition. It may not be possible for you right now because you may be in an economic situation that doesn't make a, a switch possible. But those are the things I would consider. And I guess 
where where would you send an owner operator interested in this topic? Where where should they start reading? If there's something specific on Direct Trust's website or even something more mass well known that they already trust, what, what where would you lead to or send them to some type of author who's interested in this topic? I think direct the direct trust website is actually a very good spot to go. I mean, we've, we've um, remodeled it in a way that makes it easier to find what you're looking for. So absolutely. I think you could find what you're looking for there. I think also finding a partner to work with. If you, if your, if your electronic health record system is not one, our membership is listed, our accredited HISPs are listed on the website so you can find them and find one that makes sense for you. I think that if you want to learn more about this stuff though, interoperability is, uh, is a topic that gets discussed in a lot of forums, but we have a, excuse me, we have a summit, for instance, coming up in June, uh, June 9th and 10th, that we would love to get folks from the long-term post-acute care space in attendance, and that'll be an opportunity to learn about a lot of the things we're seeing, uh, use of direct in sort of social determinants of health uh, settings, uh, use of direct for COVID reporting, you know, lots of things that um, make sense, I think, for the long-term space. COVID reporting, I think, was roughly, I think we think almost a seventh, maybe, of the traffic that we that we had in, to that, in 2020 was related to COVID reporting, which is huge because once that's that's been created, once that's been created, we actually believe that that uh, initial case reports for all kinds of different uh, diseases can occur through direct messaging to public health through that same channel. And there's there'll be no need to create new channels because that's one of the things COVID has been good for. It's created a lot of new, a lot of new templates for how we can do things, right? It's and broken down some barriers that that have been longstanding. I mean, it's been uh, really hard to get public health data to flow. It absolutely flowed like gangbusters in 2020. Are there solutions, software, alternatives out there that are misrepresenting or misusing the word interoperability and confusing the topic? Because it seems like your system is straightforward and I feel like the word's been trending and it hasn't been used in the same terms that you've described it today. You know, I mean, it's, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of things that have, that have, that people described as, when I described interoperability at the outset, you know, something in system A happens and and then a message is sent and the same thing happens in system B. That model is one where the peers on this network are, are peers, right? There's no intermediary. There's nobody in the middle. Anytime there's an intermediary, you have to wonder, well, where, what is the value the intermediary is providing? What is it actually doing? You know, what, why is it there? I mean, it's in a, in a world where the internet is and telecom and everything else is all, I mean, there are hops that you make on, to, you know, you go from your phone to the cell phone tower to another cell phone tower to the other, you know, carrier's cell phone tower to, you know, the other phone. I mean, yes, there are hops, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're, they're, they're really network hops. Like they're, they're going through the, the network is itself very connectable. And so being able to use the internet for what it was for, like that's to me what interoperability is about. I think there are a lot of systems and approaches, frankly, that are that are described as interoperability that I think of as, as non-value add intermediaries. Now, there, there are circumstances where an intermediary can bring value. I don't want to universally dis, dis um, the intermediary. But, you know, like the, the clearinghouse, for example, you know, uh, in communicating claims, right? So when a facility sends a claim to a clearinghouse, it used to be that the clearinghouse had a lot of heavy lifting to do because there was a there was a lot of difference between the way the messages were sent from the source. And there wasn't a lot of uh, clarity about what needed to happen on the other end. You know, it, it's less so today. I mean, there's, the standards are a lot tighter. And so the intermediary's value proposition is, is going down. And so once you get to the point, if standards get tight enough, and if you use the internet at its best, the role of an intermediary becomes very, very, you know, um, much important, much less important. And that's, so I think that the ones, the intermediaries that represent themselves as a requirement for interoperability, to me, they're actually 
not interoperable at all. What they are is they're they're basically you know catching and then pitching again. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. where uh, what you're looking is to get a pitch that goes all the way from one glove to the other. Scott, I appreciate you taking what is a complex, sophisticated technological solution and breaking it down and simplifying it for for me and I'm certain for our listeners. Is there anything that I haven't asked you today about interoperability, notifications, its benefits, and what Direct Trust is doing that we should cover? Well, the only other thing to mention is that you know the, the most essential component to interoperability in healthcare is security and trust. That's the part I want to leave people with is the security of a message, knowing for certain that no one else could have sent this message, knowing for certain that that no one could have meddled with it on the way. That is essential. So um, it's different than other kinds of communication. Email is not secure. Text is not secure. Instant messaging, regular instant messaging is not secure. So being able to create a secure and trustworthy framework for communicating healthcare information, that's what interoperability has to be about. And that's what our organization is really for. I appreciate the clarification. To kind of sign off, Scott, I always like to wrap up with two questions. The first one being, if you were to start all over again today in interoperability, knowing what you know today, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, you know, that's a really interesting question. I, I think I would just I would just have to tell myself to relax and and to be patient because I have definitely suffered through some impatience over the course of the last uh, four or five years, trying to get uh, the common and care quality stuff to work when I was still at Cerner. And then after coming to Direct Trust, working on this interoperable work, it is, it is, it requires patience. Nothing happens fast. So I would just, I would tell him to, to uh, be patient. <laughs> that's a good that's a good reply. I think I'd tell myself the same. I, I know that there are listeners today that are going to want to find you online to follow up and ask you questions. Where can we best find you? So, yeah, you can absolutely just uh, feel free to email me actually at scott.stewie at directtrust.org or at admin at directtrust.org um, or just go to our website and there's actually a link that you can send to admin. And I'd love to hear from anybody who has, has questions. I regularly talk to folks from the industry and um, would love to have any long-term care facility organiza- organizations who want to be more involved in our, in our governance. would love to have you as members. Love to talk with you. I appreciate it, Scott. I'm. I would like to find a case study of a long-term care facility. Maybe after your summit in June, you could point someone out to me, and we can do a 2.0 version of this conversation and see how uh, interoperability is 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 evolving in 2021. Thank you so much for your time and you know all your your passion for for our industry, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Peter. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. 